Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. And so um, we're going to uh, take time uh, to pray, uh, obviously, as we always do before uh, the word is given. And just uh, by way of reminder, this is something that certainly has been weighing upon my heart since uh, last Sunday. Uh, some of you may have been at the members' meeting. Some of you uh, may have heard. Uh, but uh, the, the truth is, yes, we, we are, I have found, uh, or actually have taken a position as a spiritual care coordinator, a spiritual care counselor and bereavement coordinator uh, with Granite Visiting Nurse Association in Laconia, New Hampshire. So I begin on November the 6th, which means that our last Sunday here uh, will be uh, October the 22nd, and then our moving date will be later that week. So uh, these are uh, these sermons from 2 Peter are, in a sense, a combination of both final uh, exhortation as well as a farewell in terms of preparing uh, uh, you for uh, whoever follows um, after me to become your, your lead pastor. This is an appropriate letter because Peter is writing uh, this letter near the end of his life, and he is concerned that his uh, listeners, his audience, will continue in their faithfulness to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, uh, let's, let's go to prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, your son, um, through your son, we have received everything that is necessary, everything that pertains to living, not only enjoying the eternal life that you have given to us by grace through faith, but for living this life here and now, the, the ability, the, the, the power, O oh Lord God, to persevere, to praise, to enjoy, to glorify, to love, to forgive, and to be forgiven. These things, Lord, these qualities all come to us and are given to us and bestowed upon us through the divine power possessed in the Lord Jesus Christ as he shares them with us. And we thank you as well that these same qualities, Lord God, this same power has also made it possible for us to be godly, to be, reflect your character in our lives, that the experiences into and through which you lead us are designed by you with the intent, the very purpose of making us more and more like Christ, that you mold us with great patience and great diligence and great care, Father, to ensure that we reflect the nature and character and personality of your Son as much as it is humanly possible with the help of your Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Lord God, for the privilege it is to, to deliver your word, to present it, to teach it, to preach it, and also to live it out, to model it, and to be an example. We pray, Lord God, that we, as we pursue you with all diligence, would indeed make every effort to reflect your glory and your goodness, your very character in everything that we say, think, and do and Father, as we continue to serve you, may your blessing uh, prepare the way for us uh, to see your glory revealed more and more, not only in our lives, but in our world, because we know this world is, uh, is one that at times can be very, very dark, and you have made us by your Son light. And we pray, Lord God, that as light, as salt, we would take seriously our mission, not only to glorify you, but by the very things that we do, uh, cause others and lead them to bring glory to our Father in heaven who promises to deliver, to save, and to rescue, to redeem, and to make holy all those who trust in his Son with the help and the power of your Holy Spirit. 
So, Father, we ask and we pray these things all now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the text before us, as I said, is, is Peter's way of encouraging and exhorting his audience to really follow through on everything that he has already mentioned in his first letter. And we spent a lot of time uh, last fall going through that letter, and you can sort of refresh your memory. If you want to think of it this way, that the, the letter of Second Peter really is a further exposition and explanation of everything Peter has said in his first letter, specifically that his audience, his readers, would continue to live such godly lives among their neighbors, their unsaved neighbors, that they would see what they're doing and begin to uh, get a sense of what it means to follow Christ. This requires, of course, great diligence and great effort on behalf of, of those who follow Jesus. And as I was thinking about you know, Peter's message here, uh, I'm reminded of this uh, quote from uh, Dallas Willard. And uh, we, we studied this in one of the spiritual life courses when Pastor Paul was here. In Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he makes the following observation about our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And Willard writes this, he says, Today, uh, no less than in Jesus' day, Christians feel the call to follow the Lord, but this is very hard. It's very hard to take seriously without Christ's physical presence here to reassure us and to guide us. And then he asks the following questions, How can ordinary human beings become like Jesus Christ? How can we be like Christ always, not just on Sundays when we're on our best behavior, surrounded by others to cheer and sustain us? And how can we be like Jesus, not as a pose or by a constant and grinding effort, but with the ease and power that he had, flowing from the inner depths, acting with quiet force from the innermost mind and soul of the very Lord who has become a real part of us? Good questions. And thankfully, Willard answers those questions with a key that unlocks how we could do that. And the key, he says, is theology. To be more specific, he says, practical theology. He continues that a theology is simply a way of thinking and understanding or even misunderstanding God. Practical theology studies the manner in which our actions interact with God to accomplish his ends in our lives. Second Peter is about practical theology. In fact, the entire New Testament, you can make the case, is about practical theology. When we think about that definition, that practical theology studies the manner in which our actions interact with God to accomplish his ends in human life, let me just add to that, it's more than just studying, it's applying the very truths that we learn about Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, about ourselves. It's applying those things in a real way every day that allows us uh, to follow him and love him and glorify him. It's the difference, if you will, between studying biology, which is the study of, of all life, if you will, to getting down to studying botany which is the study of plants and how plants grow and things like that. So given that understanding here, there are some questions that I've been asking about myself, which I think is, were, are worthy to be asked about us as a congregation. 
So I ask myself, how much time do you spend thinking about how your actions interact with God to accomplish his ends in your life? How much time do you spend thinking about how your actions collaborate with God to accomplish his ends in your relationships, your marriage, your family, your friendships, and your work, whether it's inside the home or outside the home? How much time do you spend thinking about your actions and how, how they cooperate with God to accomplish his ends through you as a member of Maranatha Grace Church? One of my preaching mentors used to tell us when we were learning how to preach, you know, thinking is hard work. Thinking about thinking is even harder work. And Peter is challenging us to think about thinking and that to take that thinking, to take those thoughts and to put them into practice because that is how we are going to give the evidence, the proof, the validity, the signs that we are indeed genuinely following Christ and imitating him in every area of our life. So it's not just good enough to show up here on Sunday morning, but it's important that we put into practice the things that are learned here when we leave this place. When you wake up tomorrow and go to work, you have to make breakfast to the kids. You have to eat what's prepared before you. You have to fulfill those assignments. You've got to do the things that are necessary. Because practically speaking, as I said before, the answer to these questions really is what, the New Testament is all about, particularly the letters of the New Testament. They're all written in, to address specific situations that deal with practical theology, applying the truths of the gospel in our everyday lives and in our relationship with Christ and with others. So you look at the letters of Paul and John and James and Jude, the letter to the Hebrews, and especially the letters of Peter. How we answer those questions why it's important to answer those questions because how we answer them will reveal the health of our spiritual life. It will also reveal the health of our church because the spiritual health of any church, in fact, the spiritual growth of any church is going to depend upon the spiritual health and upon the spiritual growth of its individual members. Everyone wants to grow. Everyone wants to mature. Everyone wants to deepen. Everyone wants to be told and shown the way to live. And that's important. That's really the job of pastors to teach and to instruct and to encourage. But there comes a point in which the members who receive that instruction must now take responsibility for what they have received and apply it. It's to be no different than, let's say, if, if someone were to gift you with a brand new car or a brand new home and say, here, here are the keys. It's yours. You can do with it as you will. Well, you would be foolish if you didn't put the key in the ignition or press the button to start the car and then drive it around and then maintain that car so that it can take you wherever you want to go. You would be unwise to leave the home unfurnished. You would begin to make that place your home, and that home would begin to reflect your personality, the things that you like. Well, it's the same thing with regard to the Christian life. We have been given a great and precious gift, which is eternal life. Peter now says, as we have received this wonderful, amazing gift, let's go about furnishing our lives with the very things that Christ has given to us, because our spiritual health will depend upon that as will the health of our church. So that really then becomes the big idea for these verses. 
that the spiritual growth, the spiritual health of any church is going to depend on every member making every effort to do everything necessary to add to their faith. I'll say it one more time. The spiritual growth and the spiritual health of any church depends on every member making every effort to do everything possible to add to their faith. So we, we're going to look at it from four different perspectives as we move through the text. So the, the very first point would be that God now has given us everything we need for spiritual growth in Jesus Christ. His divine power, and the his in that text is Jesus, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, we could spend an entire sermon on these verses alone, but since I really want to focus on what follows these verses in 5 through 7, let me just summarize what Peter is getting at here. And it's very simple and it's very straightforward. Jesus gives us everything we need to be saved from our sins and faithfully follow him. He gives us everything we need to be like him. He makes it possible for us to enjoy a relationship with, his, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and even with himself, a relationship that is so personal, a relationship that is so intimate, a relationship that is so deep and well-rooted that we, in fact, he, Peter says, become partakers of the divine nature. Now, Peter is well aware that the audience to whom he is writing has been steeped not only in the culture of the day, but more specifically in the, in the Greek and Roman culture with regard to divinity becoming embodied. And so he's not saying here that we become little gods when we partake of the divine nature. That's not what he's saying at all. What he means by becoming partakers of the divine nature is that Christ has made it possible for us in every way to reflect the very character the personality of God. Think of how we lived before we knew Christ. Not many of us were forgiving. Not many of us were humble. Not many of us were gracious. Not many of us were kind. Not many of us knew anything about what it meant to follow Christ or to love him or to know him. But now that we have come into a relationship with Christ through faith by the grace that is lavished upon us by God the Father, now we have received the very things that make us like Christ. Pastor John did a wonderful job in talking about the benediction from Numbers and how the benediction from Numbers equates with the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that we receive if we were draped, we're clothed with the very graciousness and righteousness of God. Well, when Paul writes that we have been made the righteousness of Christ, or the righteousness of God in Christ, that righteousness includes all of these qualities that he's going to mention in verses 5 through 7. We know that when we become saved, when we are born again, Jesus gives us everything we need to develop and grow in a godly character. The changes, we become a new creation. That change is not physical, but it's spiritual. We're changed from the inside out. The Holy Spirit replaces our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. 
He gives us a, a new mind. And as he changes our heart, he changes our mind. As he changes our mind, he changes the way we think. He changes the way we think. He changes the way that we live. We begin to keep in step and in tune with the Spirit. We're on the same beat. And for someone who has no musical knowledge at all, that's important because I don't know beats. That's why when you, if you see me during singing, I don't clap and sing at the same time because I can't do that. It just, it just throws me off. My kids tease me about that. But in Christ, says Peter, we can clap and sing and keep time because it's the Spirit who helps us to do that. The Spirit helps us keep in step and in tune with what God wants. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we become sinless. We're still subject to temptation. We will still yield to temptation. We will still sin. And that's why in the very next set of verses, Peter says, in light of all of these great and precious promises, right? I will be with you to the end of the age, says Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. You abide in me, you will bear much fruit. You know the truth, the truth will set you free. He who walks and, and follows me is the way, the truth, and the life. Even though he die because I am the resurrection and the life, yet he shall live. All of these promises that Christ makes to us, Peter says, enable us to have already within us, by virtue of faith, these very qualities. So in light of that, Paul, Peter says, for this very reason, because Jesus has given us all of these things, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, from the start, let me say that it's, it's easy because we live in a, in a Western mindset to think of these qualities that Peter mentions here as things that come in sequence. That we have to have one, then the next, then the next. Is there somehow, first it's faith, and then we have virtue or moral excellence. And once we've, once we've mastered that, we then move into knowledge. And once we've gotten those three things, now we move into self-control. And we, Peter's like, it doesn't work that way. And you will drive yourself to distraction if you think in those terms. These are qualities, he says, that we already possess by virtue of invest, being invested with the righteousness of Christ. Our responsibility as those who have been saved, as those who have been made right with God, is to grow in these things. So what he's really talking about is what the theologians would describe as the process of sanctification, of becoming more and more holy, and letting our lives reflect the very character of Christ. Verses 5 through 7, in other words, tell us what to do with the very qualities that Jesus has invested into us. Some, some of you have already started school. Some of you have, have been to university. We've all, if you've been to university, you college, you know that at the start of every class, you're handed a syllabus. And what does the syllabus do? It tells you what's required to do well in that course. It tells you the assignments. It tells you the readings. It tells you when they're due. In, some, in a similar way, the scriptures are our syllabus. It tells us what our ultimate goal is, and then it describes a manner in which we can reach that goal through faithfulness to Christ. 
the New Testament becomes, if you will, a manual, more than a manual in a sense, but a manual of what it means to live a godly and holy life. It's a manual that's filled with practical theology, and that's really what the next three verses are about, verses 5 to 7, because if God has given us everything we need for our spiritual growth in Christ, then spiritual growth, Peter says, requires making every effort to round out our faith. As I said before, the for this reason flows out of the fact that Jesus has given us everything we need so that these qualities, you may not think you possess them, but you do by virtue of your faith in Christ. You have, we have within us by virtue of being saved, virtue and knowledge and self-control in these things. At the same time, we understand that then spiritual growth is not an option. It's mandatory. That in the same way, to maybe carry the botany illustration a little bit further, when I, in the backyard of the house I grew up on Long Island, was this huge oak tree. And it was, it was a big old tree. It was also pretty annoying because it was my job and my brother's job to go into the gutters, the eaves troughs, and clean out the thousands and millions, it seemed, of acorns that would clog those eaves troughs. And I think one year we got so frustrated with that. It also made great, those acorns also, as annoying as they were to clean it, made great weapons for slingshots. And I was, I, unfortunately, I was more on the receiving end because my brother was a better shot. When you think about an acorn, you know, it's just a little thing. I look at the acorn, I look at the tree. Acorn, tree. Acorn, tree. That thing came from this little thing. Everything that tree needs to be an oak tree is an acorn. Everything we need to be more and more like Jesus has been deposited into us when the Holy Spirit takes residence in our heart and in our life by virtue of faith in Christ. So by necessity, an acorn has to grow into an oak tree. Can't grow into anything else. Someone who is truly born again must, must, must grow into someone who resembles by character the very characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is not whether or not we have these qualities. We do. We inherit them. The moment that we are born again, the question is, are we working them into our life so that they can be seen by others? I read a quote uh, by John Calvin, which is very arresting, but I think very applicable to this text. Calvin once said that a person who calls himself a Christian and makes no effort to live the sanctified life has no right to the name. A person who calls himself a Christian yet makes no effort to live the sanctified life, Calvin says, has no right to the name. What's a sanctified life? It's a holy life. It's a life that is set apart from the life that we lived before we knew Christ. And it requires, does this sanctify, does this growing in holiness life, it requires putting our faith to work <clears throat> by developing the very qualities that Christ has given to us. 
as I said before, this list is not necessarily in the exact order. You may develop virtue or moral excellence more than you will develop these other ones, but the fact is you will grow in them. You think about it, that <clears throat> in terms of having our character reflect the very character of Christ, that if we claim to be Christian, we will reflect these things. It's no different. I've used the illustration before. It's no different than if someone tells you that they are a, a pianist and all they can play are rudimentary scales. You're thinking, well, you're playing the piano, but you're not really making music. You got the basics down, but if you want to play a concerto, if you want to play a sonata, if you want to play a nocturne, you're going to have to work at that. Now, if, if they say they're a pianist and they play something from Chopin, okay then, I'm more likely to be inclined. Someone says they're a doctor, right? <clears throat> I would expect them to be able to diagnose me and say, I'm looking at you, I have no idea what's wrong with you. I mean, I, they prove they're a doctor by making an accurate diagnosis and treating me. Or I go to an accountant to have my taxes done. I expect the accountant not only to know tax law, but how to add. Right? So it's the same thing. Someone says they're a Christian, you're going to be able to prove it. So we know an oak tree is an oak tree because it has roots, it has a trunk, it has branches, it has leaves. Oh, lots of leaves. And it has acorns for the purpose of making more trees. So it's the same thing. We're going to be about the business as followers of Christ, not only growing in Christ's likeness individually, but then we're going to share that life with others. We're going, to we're going to plant, if you will, the truth of God's Word into the lives of others. We're going to do it into our children's lives. We're going to do it into the lives of our friends and our family, those who don't know Jesus. We're going to encourage one another to grow. It takes effort, says Peter. That word, make every effort. He's going to follow it up in verse 10 about making every, with all diligence. It takes sacrifice. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes faith. It takes patience. I, I read a, a book uh, somewhere. I think it was written by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. And in the book, uh, Gladwell makes the point that for, before anyone can claim to be an expert in any one field, they need at least to put in 10,000 hours into that area. I, I, so I quickly began doing a little math. You know, 20 hours a week for a sermon, that's a lot of hours over 38 years. You who are medical professionals, how many hours did you put in in study, in residency, before they let you loose by yourself or started your own practice? or even as an accountant, or as a musician. You spend hours, hours, hours. In order to get one unit of CPE, I had to do 100 hours of, of education time and another 300 hours of clinical. And if you want to go on to pursue that, those who want to be in a counseling situation, it can get up to four, 5,000 hours of time before you're actually qualified. So. We think that somehow because we're saved, we should instantly be like Jesus. No! 
You are in a sense that you're, you're clothed, you're whole, you're forgiven, you're saved, but it's going to take time. Parents know this. We have to learn this. We struggle and get frustrated because our kids aren't perfect. And then we remember that, you know, we were that jerky and that disobedient and that rebellious and that quirky when we were that age. So be patient. Be patient with yourself as well. I have a friend who plays golf like I do, badly. And he played it so badly one time, he was with a friend who plays very well. And my friend who played badly after he hit a succession, a succession of bad shots just broke his club. And the guy who played well said, Sam, that wasn't his real name, let me tell you something. I'm going to give you a piece of advice. You're not good enough to get that angry. When it comes to following Jesus, and you make a mistake, and you sin, and you start calling curses down in yourself, you're not that good enough to get that angry. So stop it. Take a moment. Take a breath. Realize that's what grace is for. So that when I make a mistake, when I sin, when I commit a sin of omission, when I commit a sin that I do deliberately, though I don't want to do it, take a breath and realize, oh, grace is there to pick me up, dust me off, remind me that that is not who I am. Who I am is one who is clothed and filled with the Holy Spirit. It takes that kind of effort to grow in holiness. And we think nothing. We think nothing of spending hours pursuing a hobby. We think nothing of spending hours building a career or parenting our children or uh, scrolling the Internet. So again, I ask myself some questions. How much time do you spend making every effort to live the sanctified life? How much time do you spend making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love? Following them, you understand, building these qualities, that takes a lifetime. And you'll never, you're never going to get it right. So be patient with yourself because God is patient with you. You don't think that God knew when he called you you were going to mess up? It's like, I chose that Malanga because, man, I know, as soon as I tab him, instant perfection. Far from it. Look at the apostles. How many times when Jesus is teaching them and he gives them some instruction and, they, and he asks them, do you understand what I'm saying? And they go, uh-huh. And then look at how they behave. They didn't get it. So if, if 12 men personally chosen by Jesus Christ didn't get it, <laughs> but took a lifetime to develop that faith, what makes me think I should be able to get it in an instant? You're not. Because salvation is an act of God. That's what verses 3 to 4 are all about. Verses 5 through 7 are about how God makes us holy, that process of sanctification. Yes, we are holy the moment that we are born again. And that is a sovereign work of the Spirit. And it's a sovereign work of the Spirit who makes us grow in that holiness. 
but we do contribute to that by our obedience. Because living the sanctified life requires obedience. It requires taking responsibility for what we have received, not only from Christ, not only through the Holy Spirit, but through those who encourage and teach and instruct us in these things. It's why the, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews would become frustrated with his readers in Hebrews 5.11 because he tells them at the end of Hebrews chapter 5, by now, he said, you should be able to have solid food because solid food is for the mature. But as it is, he says, you're still needing milk. What's he saying? He's saying there should be a point in which you grow from milk to solid food. And the way that you go from milk to solid food is by practicing the very qualities that Christ has invested in you the moment you're born again. We think nothing, although we may get frustrated, when a 15-year-old acts like a 15-year-old. We think it very odd if a 60-year-old acts like a 15-year-old. Why? Because we expect that 45 years of age and maturity would change a way a man or a woman thinks, acts, and behaves. It's the same thing. I am not, you know, I am not the man my wife married 42 years ago. Thank God. Because 22-year-old Mike was rather immature. Rather prideful, and at times aloof. But since iron sharpens iron, and in community, we learn where those rough edges are. This is why we emphasize the importance of covenant membership. Because these qualities that we're called to grow in individually, we're also called to develop corporately. We're to work out our salvation. These qualities are to be worked out in community. I can be the most godly man when no one is around. Put me in a crowded room, put me in a relationship, put me in a leadership team, and suddenly there are thoughts and intents that arise in my heart and mind that I was not aware of. The same is true for you. And when they arise, don't shrink back from them. Offer them up as a sacrifice and let God scoop the dross away so that what is left is the godly qualities of Christ that are already resonant within us. The goal of Peter's instruction here is not because do these things and you will be saved. The goal of his exhortation is Christ has already done these things for you, so just live in them. One of, one of the greatest uh, illustrations of this is if you've um, ever read uh, uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. There is a, Victor Hugo, the main character, Jean Valjean, uh, I can't take too much time to describe it, but he rescues a, a, an eight-year-old girl uh, of, of a woman that he had fired at his factory. And this eight-year-old girl, Cosette, is, is being raised by a family that is just absolutely brutal. And they just make her, she works like a slave. She hauls water, she cleans, she's just this eight-year-old girl. And Valjean rescues her, he redeems her, he buys her back. And then the very first morning when the little girl arises, she runs to Valjean, she says, Monsieur, shall I clean? Shall I sweep? Shall I go fetch water? 
And after every question about the work that she should do, Val John says, Cosette, play. But shall I fetch the water? Play. But shall I make breakfast? Play. She's, re she's redeemed. She's rescued. All she has to do now is enjoy the freedom that Valjean has purchased for her. We go to Christ and say, can I help you, Lord? Can I do more? He says, play. Use what I have given you by my grace to just reflect the freedom and the joy that you have because I have set you free from your former way of life. Peter doesn't say how to supplement our faith with these things. He just simply tells us why. Because it's about fruitfulness that's born of faithfulness. That's why the spiritual growth and the spiritual health of any church depends on the, the spiritual health and growth of its members, making every effort to do everything necessary to display these qualities. And I, I like the fact that he doesn't tell us how, because that's deliberate and it's liberating, because the gospel isn't a matter of filling out a checklist Somehow, we get this idea that because we're saved by grace, we're now instantly legalists. That because Christ has saved us, now there are things to do. There are. But we do them because we have been set free from a way of life that was futile and empty and pointless. To live a life that is categorically different. And Peter begins this list. In verses 5 through 7, let me just read them to you because I know I've alluded, them, I've alluded to them already. He says, for this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. He starts that list with faith because faith is a gift that makes everything else possible. Faith is a gift that enables us to respond to the call of the gospel. And love comes at the end of it. This is very similar to almost the way that Paul starts 1 Corinthians 13, 13, right? For now, he says, these three things abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Because love, in addition to being the greatest of the Christian virtues, it is the glue that holds all of these things together. Someone who is morally excellent, someone who has a godly character but has not love, says Paul, is like a clanging cymbal. Someone who excels in the knowledge of Scripture, in the knowledge of Christ, but without love, you don't want to be near that person. You've got a prideful, boastful, arrogant, almost disrespectful, impatient person. Virtue here is moral excellence. It's honesty. It's integrity. It's telling the truth. How are you doing? What are you doing to grow in the area of moral excellence? Telling the truth is hard for some. For others of us, telling the truth, we just, it just comes naturally. We have no concern for the consequences. When we were uh, selling our stuff in a yard sale, when we moved from North Dakota to Canada, you know, we put all of our, all of our worldly goods on display that we were going to sell at the yard sale. And uh, our oldest at the time, of course, being the firstborn, right, firstborns are just incredibly just and very honest. 
and uh, we had a, a table that we were selling. And, you know, Matthew comes and said, Mom, Dad, that table's got a broken leg. It's like, oh, we know, Matthew. It's, it's obvious. He's, Why are we selling it? It's defective. And then he would come in and say, Mom, Dad, Jeff's licking the silverware. It's like, Matthew, they'll wash it. How are you growing in that area of telling the truth but telling it in love? And that knowledge, the knowledge of Christ that comes from the gospel. How are you doing there? I, I say this not to, not to incur or, or inflict guilt, but as a measuring rod, because that's why these qualities are listed. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's enough of a list to get an idea of how we're doing. Persevering, steadfastness, Godliness being that practical awareness of God. Loving. What's interesting, too, and I hear I, uh, Jill and I were talking about Acorn. She, she gave me this lovely copy of Magnolia Magazine, which just so happened to have an article about how to grow an acorn into an oak tree. Now, if you'll notice, it starts off in one place and eventually ends up in a pot. Right? But from that pot, it'll eventually be planted in a yard where it can grow. Well, what do you think God does with us as we grow in these qualities? He takes you from the place where he found you. And little by little, as you pursue holiness and righteousness and godliness of Christ, he moves you. He takes you from your family, which may have been functional or dysfunctional. But he takes you from that, that place and he plants you someplace else. He plants you in the midst of a, maybe a school community where you begin to interact with, with people who don't think the way that you do or may mistreat you. But your faith is encouraged to grow because you have the prayerful support of a community around you. And then it takes you from there to a work situation where now you have to interact with others. You have to receive orders or you may have to manage people. And little by little, God moves you from different pots allowing you the opportunity to display his glory wherever he places you. So that as you do that, you grow. Because every time you practice one of these qualities and you receive that sense of approval and affirmation from the Spirit, it's like that's a shot of adrenaline. That's a reminder. Yet You're growing. You're making progress. You're developing a well-rounded faith. And there are the obvious mechanisms for this, right? We can talk about prayer. We can talk about Bible study. We can talk about confessing, uh, confessing our sin. We can talk about uh, having fellowship and, and a good sense of accountability with others who we're entrusting with our, our spiritual welfare, saying, how am I doing? Hold me accountable. Tell me. Help me. Pray for me. Teach me. Show me. And you can tell how invested someone is in their faith by how well they're growing in these areas. You can tell how invested a man or a woman is in their marriage by how they treat their wife, their husband, or their children. You can tell, I think, how invested is a single person in their singleness by how they can view their singleness, though they may desire to be married, how they view their singleness as a gift, a gift that God has given them that enables them to serve in ways that a married person can't, that gives them a certain freedom. 
And you can tell how invested an older single person is in their singleness by how they can help younger singles learn how to overcome things like loneliness and sexual temptation and frustration and anger. Because no matter what stage we're in, right, how invested is a, a teenager in following the faith of their parents when they think their parents just haven't gotten it right? They become a little frustrated with that. How do we grow in these areas except by growing in these areas? By acknowledging our need for help in them. Developing a well-rounded faith because fruitfulness is the goal here. And God puts us in particular environments to help us grow. So a well-rounded faith means we're being productive members of uh, followers of Christ. That's what verses 8 and 9 are all about. If you have these qualities and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Spin verse 8 positively. If you practice these qualities, if these qualities are yours, you are effective. You are fruitful. If not, you're nearsighted. I take off my glasses and three-quarters of you become blurs. Peter says that's what happens to a person if they fail to develop these qualities. Because now that I have my glasses off, the only thing that's clear to me is what's right in front of me. And if what's right in front of me occupies all of my attention because I can see it clearly, I can't see any of you. If my circumstances become so clear to me, whether they're good or whether they're difficult, all I see is them, and I don't see Christ in any of it. Jesus invites Peter to walk out of the boat, and rather than focus on Christ, rather than focus at the point in the distance, Peter begins looking at the waves. He feels the wind. I can remember some of you, if you have ever learned how to ride a bicycle, I can't roller skate, I can't skateboard, don't ask me how, I will break my neck. But I know how to ride a bicycle. But I remember my dad telling me, the key to riding a bicycle, the key to keeping your balance is don't look at the tire in front of you. You got to keep your head up and go forward. As soon as I dropped my eyes, I was on the ground. Many skin knees later, I got the lesson. The same thing is happening when we follow Christ. You look at your circumstances, that's all you're going to see. And you won't be productive. You won't remember that you have, by his divine power, faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control, in godliness, you will be prisoner to the immediate rather than someone who has been set free to see beyond those circumstances to the God who called you into those circumstances so that he can be glorified through them and through the way that you behave. And then the last part of this is that productive followers work hard to confirm their salvation. That's verses 10 to 11. And Peter ends by simply saying there, um, be all the more diligent. There's that word again, make every effort. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 
Uh, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Going back to the bicycle illustration, once I learned how to ride a bicycle, the world was my oyster. I could, at least back then, you could go anywhere you wanted as, as, long, as far as my legs could take me. That's how I made my calling, if you will, as a junior cyclist secure. How does a musician, how does a doctor, how does a, an accountant make their calling sure? By practicing the very things that they have learned to help them further their career and help others. How do we as Christians confirm our calling and election? The fact that we have been sovereignly chosen by God to be followers of his son. We put into practice the very things that Christ has given us to practice. We confirm our calling and our election by making every effort to do everything necessary to add to our faith. Now, some wrestle with this, and that's the whole purpose of practical theology, which is designed to increase our awareness and our assurance of faith. Because some of us may wrestle from time to time, am I really saved? Pastor, I don't know if I do all these qualities. I don't know if I can. And so I'm reminded and encouraged by uh, three essential questions that um, I learned from uh, reading R.C. Sproul. Um, Sproul makes the point that before we come to Christ, we're deaf to his voice. We don't pay attention to the things of God. We're willing to do things God's way. Because we're human, we may struggle uh, from time to time with whether or not we know. How can we know we're saved? So we find it difficult to do what Peter says here. So when I find myself in those situations, and don't be uh, you know, surprised that at nearly 50 years after coming to faith in Christ, I don't wrestle at times with that. So I've learned from Sproul to ask these three essential questions. When it comes to answering the question, how do I know that I'm saved? How can I know if I'm saved? Ask yourself this question. Do I love Jesus perfectly? Now, the answer, of course, is no. No one does. The second question, do you love Jesus as much as you ought to? Again, the answer is no. I'm human. I sin. I don't. I, sometimes my pride and my lust and everything else gets in the way. Then that's where the third question comes in. Well, do you love Jesus at all? Not the Jesus is defined by our culture, the Jesus who accepts everyone, right? The Jesus who is extremely tolerant of all types. But the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of Matthew 7, 21 and 23, the Jesus of Matthew 23, the Jesus who gives himself to be crucified on the cross, the Jesus who would call the, the self-righteous a brood of vipers. Do you love that Jesus? Do you love the one who appears in Scripture? Now, if you answer yes to that question, the answers to the first two questions don't matter. Because if you answer yes, I love Jesus, that's where practical theology comes in because it is impossible for someone who doesn't know Christ to have any true love or affection for him. 
So if you love Jesus at all, you have received everything, everything necessary for life and godliness, starting with the faith that leads to that salvation. All that is required of you is to now supplement that faith with the very qualities that he has invested into us through a lifestyle that reflects his character, his nature, and his glory. So I ask again the following questions. How much time do you spend thinking about how your actions interact with God to accomplish his ends in your life? How much time do you spend thinking about how your actions collaborate with God to accomplish his ends in your relationships, your marriage, your family, your friendships, your work inside and outside the home? And then lastly, how much time do you spend thinking about how your actions cooperate with God to accomplish his ends through you as a member of MGC? Because the spiritual growth, the spiritual health of any church is going to depend on every member doing everything possible to grow into the image and likeness of Christ. You think about that, and let's pray as we prepare to celebrate communion. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that, <clears throat> as Augustine said, Father, command what you give and give what you command. That the life to which you have called us is a life that Christ has lived for us already. More than just as our example, but as our Savior, as our living head. And more than that, you have given to us your Holy Spirit who makes it possible to live the life that you call us to live. To become more and more godly. To become more and more reflective of your character, your nature, your goodness, your patience, your kindness, and your grace. The list goes on. Father, it is a privilege to know you. It is a privilege, Lord God, to serve you. It is also something that requires responsibility in our part. So pray, Lord God, give us, give us the grace, give us the desire, and give us the power to do what you have commanded and then give as you have commanded. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.